Good morning, church family. Uh, today is Next Generation Sunday, as you can see from your worship guide. And most simply, what, what that means uh, is today we're going to focus on what it would look like uh, or what needs to happen for us as a universal church, right, as Christ's church, to see the next generation be marked by faithfulness to Christ, be marked by faithfulness and fidelity to Christ and his kingdom, right, to look as if they are truly citizens of heaven, right, and to be honest, this is just a, uh, everything that I say today is just the conversations that I've been having with myself uh, the last few years, because as someone who is not only a part of the next generation, uh, but as someone whose life revolves around and is shaped by the next generation. Uh, if we're being honest, it doesn't take much for us to look out into what's going on in our world uh, and be discouraged. Right? It, it's, it's easy to be discouraged, whether that be the secular world or whether that be through the lens of church ministry. It's easy for us to look out into the next generation and feel like something's off. Like something's missing. Like what in the world are we doing wrong? Uh, I don't know if you were here a few weeks ago at our vision night, uh, but Zach put up a graph, a statistic on the screen of baptisms among the next generation, which I believe is defined as birth to graduating high school. Baptisms among the next generation uh, over the last 50 years. I don't have that graph. I don't need to show you that graph. It was straight downhill, right? And it's things like that that are so discouraging to see that Jesus is moving and doing awesome things, but it seems like we're missing it with the next generation. That forces us to ask the question, why are we seemingly losing the next generation? Why are we seemingly losing the next generation? And it's through the lens of that question, that's what's going to shape and form uh, our message today. Uh, and what we walk through and talk through. Uh, and I believe one of the main reasons that we're losing the next generation is simply this. We have created a category of Christian. We have created a new category or a new type of Christian that sees discipleship as optional. Most simply what I mean is that we have created a category of Christian that can be converted Right? They can give us a date and a time and a place and a prayer they prayed where Jesus saved them. But then that's the fullness of their spiritual journey. Right? You ask them their testimony, that's it. There seems to be no walking with Christ. One pastor says that a disciple is a convert in motion. Right? But that seems to be not true uh, in recent church history, that we think we can be converted to Christ, claim Christianity, right? have a Bible verse in our Facebook bio, but not walk with him faithfully. We have created a category of Christian that separates convert and discipleship. Uh, and I think that is partly due to the way that we have recently, uh, in our little evangelical circle anyway, the way that we have defined and talked about what it means to be saved. Right? What is the gospel? What are the main points of the gospel? I think that affects how we view discipleship because how we talk about salvation and how we define it uh, subconsciously puts places or takes away the importance of discipleship in our mind. Dallas Willard, uh, who was a professor, uh, I believe of philosophy, I don't know, a, a professor and basically a spiritual formation guru, a uh, very smart man, he says this. He says, the total package of salvation in the church today, the total package 
Let me say this. When I say in the church today, I'm not talking about Enon. I just want to clear that up. I'm talking about the church as a whole. All right. In the church today, he says the total package of salvation is presented in such a way that it leaves the general life untouched. He says, and this inevitably leads to, this is important, a form of religion that has accepted non-obedience to Christ. Notice that he says non-obedience and not disobedience. They're really the same thing, but disobedience means, you know, utter rebellion. Non-obedience simply means, and we're not doing anything. Non-obedience to Christ. He says, and the hunger for spirituality and spiritual formation in our day is a direct consequence of that. He says, we have a form of religion that has accepted non-obedience to Christ. Again, most simply what that means is that we believe that convert and disciple are no longer synonymous. We believe that convert and disciple are no longer synonymous. Rush used to say this all the time. He'd always say that salvation is not the finish line, right? It's not the finish line. It's just the starting line. And we have to be serious about believing that to be true in our own lives and in the lives of the next generation, right? Conversion and discipleship must rise and fall together. Let me give you an example uh, of what I mean. This is partly just to give you an example and partly just to celebrate the heck out of what the Lord has been doing recently. Uh, We meet, our staff meetings on Monday mornings uh, are in the upper room of the children's building. Um, And we meet there for, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours. And our first hour is always spent just through prayer uh, and celebrating. Man, and talking about what the Lord's done. And often I leave thinking, man, I don't know if we got anything done, but it was great. Right? And we celebrated, we prayed, we weeped, we cried. And most recently, the thing that we have celebrated most, gosh, and it's been awesome to hear, is the Lord has been saving people. And it's been cool to see. Just to play a part and to sit on the sidelines and see, it's been awesome to hear. Just in the last few weeks, uh, Jim Hazelwood, his son, gave his heart to the Lord. Zach's son, no, don't celebrate, there's more. Zach's son gave his heart to the Lord. Uh, Donnie Young, I swear, has led an entire village to the Lord, right? It's been incredible. A guy drives his motorcycle into our parking lot. Zach's walking across the parking lot because he lives right there. Lucky. He's walking across the parking lot. The dude pulls up to Zach, thinks he knows him, starts talking about his bike. Zach, in essence, says, dude, that's cool. I don't know who you are. Doesn't matter. Leads him to the Lord in our parking lot. Like it's cool. Things are happening. Me and AJ, AJ Chicarillo, he's one of our interns. Uh, he's Italian. We go to the lunch uh, at Jordan on Wednesdays, uh, and we just go eat with our students, and we go to eat with our students, but also meet other students, and it's just fun. Uh, we live in that southern culture where it's okay if the youth pastor goes to lunch, and I just ask, hey, y'all go to church anywhere? If they go to Highlands, that's fine. If they go to Gardendale, I tell them that Caleb Wade's selling drugs, that they need to come here. Caleb's great, Caleb's great. But we go and talk to people. Me and AJ, last Wednesday, we had made the rounds, right? We've talked to all our students. We're running out of them. Random table, we walk by. We're on our way out, actually. We walk by and sit down, start talking to these students. Um, They don't go to church anywhere, so we just ask, hey, do you know what the gospel is? Has anybody ever shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you? They said no. Man, we launched into it. We get through the gospel uh, and I'm like, man, is that, is that something that you would like to, would you like to follow Jesus today? And these two guys right beside me, purest eyes in the whole world, look at me and they say, yeah, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I'm like, 
What, are you sure? You want to follow Jesus? And like, yes, sir. Listen, I gave them as many off-ramps as possible. And they continually said yes. At one point, the one guy said, dude, this is sounding pretty good. I was like, yeah, it's sounding pretty good. It's great. I was like, all right, man. We led him to the Lord right there at the lunch table at Mortimer Jordan. Like these, I am only scratching the surface of what the Lord has been doing lately through our staff and through our people. Man, it's been encouraging. Let me say this. On one hand, we want to stand fully and celebrate that. Praise God that his arm is not too short to save. He has been saving and redeeming his people to himself. Man, and it does my heart good to see that. But let me say this. If those people get saved and we never speak to them again, we are not fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission says make disciples, not make converts. As glorious, as glorious as conversion is, and it's the necessary and beautiful first step. It's just that. It's the first step. And if we want to see the next generation marked by faithfulness, we have to be a church that is serious about not only step one, but step two and three and four and five. We have to be serious about forming Christ in our own selves and in the lives of the next generation. We, have to, we need a renewed vision of discipleship because the truth is, and this is the hard truth, the next generation, they're not a blank slate, right? Saying a few things to them here and there, uh, they're not like a whiteboard that you fill with scripture and boom, they're just godly as all get out. They are being shaped. They are being formed. But it's normally by the culture around them. Right? They are being shaped. Somebody is discipling your child, your grandchild. Somebody's doing it. Church, it has to be us. It has to be us. Uh, a pastor in the early 1900s, his name was Dietrich. Uh, his name's still Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he was pastoring in the midst of Hitler's reign, right, of the right taking over, uh, not only uh, the political sphere of Germany, but it was really, like historic, historians say, it was a religious battle. Uh, Hitler and the Reich have taken over the German church. Uh, the German church has folded. Uh, they have shown their weakness uh, to follow Jesus in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hard times. Bonhoeffer sees this, right? He sees uh, the way that the church is failing uh, in the midst of all these things going on. So what he does, he's gifted by the grace of God this land and this big house. Somebody gives it to him, and he basically starts an underground seminary. Uh, and in this underground seminary, he invites, I believe it's 12, uh, between 10 to 13 young pastors into this seminary just to train them to lead Germany back to repentance, back to faithfulness to Christ in the generation to come. Uh, and these are pastors that would be arrested and some even murdered uh, after his seminary was found out. But he leads them, and it was a rigorous, rigorous seminary. And this is where his book, Life Together, began to take shape. Right? In the pages of Life Together, you're witness, witnessing, witnessing what's happening in that seminary. Uh, and one of Bonhoeffer's friends hears about all this going on. Right, he hears one of Bonhoeffer's sermons or his lectures. Uh, he hears about how rigorous this seminary is, and he plans a trip uh, from Berlin to come visit Bonhoeffer. And he comes and he says, basically, man, stop. Calm down. The things that you are doing with these men, with these young men, are too extreme. Bonhoeffer, you come from an elite family. 
This much, much spirituality is not becoming of a young elite. These are the things that he says to Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer takes him. Uh, they get into a rowboat, and they row across this river. They walk up on this hill, and they look out into this field out around them. And what it is is an airfield with planes taking off and, and landing, German soldiers marching in formation. It was, one of, uh, an, it was a Nazi air base. Right, and Bonhoeffer turns to his friend and he launches into this sermon, basically, or this lecture, saying, look, look at what's happening in this airfield. Hitler is making disciples. He's forming people. He's shaping their minds, their hearts, their desires. He's shaping them for a kingdom of devastation and death. Hitler is shaping people. He's forming people. And then basically, as profound as this sounds, uh, Bonhoeffer points back. He points back to the direction of his seminary, a little bitty house with 12 dudes in it. And he says, this has to be stronger than that. He says, this has to be stronger than that. What we're doing in our seminary must be stronger than what Hitler's doing with his army. Church, what we do inside these walls, what you do inside the walls of your home, has to be stronger than that. It has to be stronger than what's happening outside your walls. Your student is being formed by TikTok, by Snapchat, Instagram, whatever. They're being formed by something. The church has to do a better job of forming them. And that leads us to our text today, which is uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you are one of our faithful and beloved VBS volunteers, then you know this is the passage that we went through in 2018 or 2019, I believe. Uh, and it's great. Kim Hayes, I tried to get her and uh, Miss Jennifer to come up and do the dance for us. They said they had something to do. Whatever. 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. And I forgot to do this in the first service because, like Zach said, I was petrified. First service is always way less fun because I'm always scared. This one's more fun. But if you will do something with me, if you will stand up as we read God's Word together, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3, uh, and we're going to go all the way through verse 8. I think those last few things are important. Uh, verses 5 through 8, we won't talk about them, but if you're being formed into the image of Christ, those things will be yours and increasing. That's kind of a good litmus test for am I being a disciple? Let's look at verse 3. It says this, and it'll be on the screen. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. <clears throat> by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world... Because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. These are the markers of a disciple. Faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with the cornerstone, the foundation of them all, brotherly affection with love. Let me pray for us. And then we'll get started. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the call that you have placed on each and every one of our lives. And that call is to look more like your son, Jesus. God, and I know in that pursuit, in that life, our most joyful life is found. God, it's a hard road. 
Sanctification is hard. But God, it's the highest aim. It's the highest business that we can make ourselves be about. God, and I pray that today you would give us a renewed vision of that. That we would leave this place with our only desire being to look more like your son. Because we know that that's how things change. God, the church is at its strongest when your people resemble your son. God, I pray that would be true of each one of us. God, I pray you'd meet us here. Meet us here. God, inhabit this place. It's in your beautiful son, Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Every time I read this, I cannot believe that they used it for VBS. That's one of the most confusing few verses in the whole Bible. I need the message. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. What Peter lays out for us in these verses, uh, I think, is a very simple uh, but clear uh, pathway for discipleship. A discipleship pathway. A pathway that leads to, like Peter says, life and godliness. A pathway that leads to partaking, partaking in the divine nature. Right? That doesn't mean becoming a God. It just means looking more like God. Partaking in the divine nature. So we have a goal. And the first thing Peter shows us towards that end is the power needed to get there. Our first point, if you're taking notes, is power to become like Christ. We have the power to become like Christ. If our goal for today is a renewed vision for discipleship, a renewed energy, right, a renewed seriousness and zeal for shaping and forming people, it's probably wise that we first define what discipleship is. And this uh, what we're going to launch into is not an official, trademarked, Enon Baptist Church uh, definition of discipleship. We'll get to that with our discipleship pathway in the coming months. Uh, this is just a broad, 30,000-foot scriptural view of what it means to make disciples. Uh, so what, uh, what I believe biblically that discipleship can be defined as is this, a restoration of Imago Dei. A restoration of Imago Dei. Most of you are probably familiar with the term Imago Dei, but if you're not, Imago Dei is simply a Latin phrase meaning image of God. Image of God. And this doctrine uh, finds its roots, it finds its start in Genesis chapter 1. Right? We know the story. Genesis is very poetic in the way uh, that it was written. God is in the midst of his creation, in the midst of creating. He speaks and things are coming to be. Right? And Genesis 1 basically walks through it like this, walks through it like this. He says, let there be vegetation. Right? God says, let there be vegetation, plants that give seed, trees that bear fruit. Then he says this, this repeated phrase, each according to its kind. Each according to its kind. God says, let the water swarm with living creatures. Let birds multiply in the skies above. And he created them each according to its kind. God says, let the earth be filled with the beasts of the field, with livestock, with all creeping things, each according to its kind. But then the story shifts. Right? When God gets to man, he does not say, let us make man according to its kind. There is no kind at which to model man after. But rather God says, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man according to our kind. In our image, in our likeness. Let us make man in the imago Dei, in the image of God. God sets men and women above creation. And being made in the imago Dei, in God's image, carries with it uh, a couple of very important things. Number one, 
uh, and most importantly, is value. The fact that you are made in God's image mean that you have, means that you have inherent dignity, worth, and value. It means regardless of what your past looks like, you are worthy of respect, that you are the highest of all creation. It means regardless of what you can or cannot produce in a culture that is obsessed with producing, no matter what you can or can't produce, you are made in God's image, therefore you have value. Not only does it bring value, but it also brings vocation. It also gives you a job. Being made in God's image brings with it a certain responsibility. Right? God creates Adam and Eve in his image, in the Imago Dei, and then he gives them a job to do. He creates his world. He drops Adam and Eve in the middle of it, and he says, run it. Right? The Imago Dei carries with it a vocation. God intends to rule and to reign his own creation. But he does that through his creation. He does that through you and through me. But then you know how the story goes. Sin comes in and it does what it does. Right? It breaks things. It ruins God's good creation. The image of God in us is then broken and perverted. It's not lost. That's important to know. The image of God in you has not been lost. But it has been broken. Your desires are now bent inwards, no longer toward righteousness, toward what God wants, but toward unrighteousness. We're still marked by dignity and value and worthy of respect, but we're also marked by sin and by unrighteousness and by rebellion. The image of God in us has been broken, and it's in this reality that we find God's mission of discipleship. He intends to restore Praise God. He intends to restore his image in you and in me. Discipleship, most simply, is the restoration of Imago Dei. If you want to see it through New Testament lenses, discipleship is most simply you being formed more into the image of God's own son, Jesus Christ. Right? The perfect, tangible representation of the Imago Dei. This is his work in you. This is why he saved you. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. This is what he purposed for you before the foundations of the earth. He predestined you so that you would look like Jesus, that he would restore his image in you. He would redeem you and reconcile and draw you back in, make you look like you belong to the family, because you do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, if you ever ask the question, what in the world is God's will for my life? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which is really hard when you're trying to pick a job or finding out who you should marry, but your sanctification, that's the will of God for your life. His goal for you is life and godliness. And praise God that verse 3 in 2 Peter doesn't say that his divine power has given you 50% of the things you need for life and godliness. It doesn't say that his divine power has granted to you most of the things you need. It says his divine power has granted to you all things needed for life and godliness. He's called you to discipleship. He's given you the power to get there. This is one of the beautiful truths about our God. There is nothing that he will ask of you that he will not also supply the power needed to accomplish it. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, uh, talking about his work within the churches. He says, for this I toil, struggling, listen to this last part, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
I love that. Paul is struggling with all of his energy, all of God's energy that he powerfully works within him. And I think that's why discipleship can be so daunting because it's so easy for us to believe. Whether we say it or not, it's easy for us to believe that we're left to our own energy in discipleship. That in order for us to get from A to B, God saves us at A and leaves us and tells us, go to B. Right? Go be a disciple. You got it. I'm watching if you need me, but you got it. And that's simply not true. And what I mentioned earlier about our, the way we package salvation, the way we talk about the gospel, what it means to be saved, I think uh, this stems from that. This is a, a direct result of the way we view what it means to be saved. Right? It is wholly true. Holy and gloriously true that Jesus died to save you from the penalty of your sins. But he also died to save you from the power of your sins, your present sins. He died to make you more like Jesus. He died to make you more like himself. He died to save you one day from the presence of all sin. Praise God. And look at me. That's just the personal salvation side of the gospel. We haven't even gotten to the kingdom. Every time Jesus comes preaching, it says he preached the gospel of the kingdom. If that's the fullness of our understanding of what it means to be saved, that Jesus died for the penalty of our sins, then it's no wonder that we see discipleship as optional. If that's the fullness of what Christ did for you and for me on that cross, then after he saves us, his work in us is done. And that's not true. That's certainly not the storyline of Scripture. Thomas Schreiner says this, The New Testament writers never imagined a passive faith that could be sundered from a life of discipleship. Another way of saying that, the New Testament writers never imagined that you could be a convert and not be a disciple. They rise and fall together. Jesus frees you from the penalty of your sin, yes and amen, but also from the power and the presence and welcomes you to the kingdom. He makes you look like a kingdom citizen, a citizen of heaven. And if that's all true, if that's all true, then this passage should greatly encourage you and me. Because as we pursue holiness, as we pursue life and godliness, as we seek to be formed more and more and more into the image of Christ, may we never believe that we're left to our own devices. May we never believe that he doesn't help. His grace saves you, but praise God, it sustains you. His mercies are new every few months. That's not true. His mercies are new every morning. He saves you and he sustains you. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that truth leads us into our next inevitable question. Okay, how do we access that power? How do we get that power to live a godly life? Let's read verse 3 and 4 again, part of it. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Listen to this part. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Our power comes from God. And the process by which we obtain this power is through our knowledge of him. But we need to be clear from the start what this knowledge is and what it isn't. This knowledge is not a head knowledge. It's not knowing things about Jesus. right? It's an experiential knowledge. It's knowing It's not intellectual assent, but it's knowing in your gut, right? I don't know that honey is sweet, 
because I read it on an online uh, recipe. I know that honey's sweet because I put it on everything. I love the sweetness of honey. I don't know that God is good because someone told me. I know that God is good because I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's a gut. You know him. The power comes through knowledge, through knowing him. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 says this. You have put on the new self. Boom, conversion. What's next? Which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Romans 12 uh, verse 2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world. Another way of saying that, do not be discipled by the world around you. But rather, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? This experiential knowledge brings power. It brings transformation. It brings renewal. So what does this knowledge look like? What does it mean to know him in such a way that just knowing him changes you, changes who you are? We've got to clean this place up. Changes who you are. Uh, One of the things that I want to be personally marked by and one of the things that we talk about, uh, especially a lot recently with the students, I want everybody to be marked by uh, is our ability to think rightly, to think rightly. And what I mean by that, I don't mean that you are the most educated person in the room in every room you step in, though that's good. Bro, pursue that. Education could be the silver bullet in a hundred different areas, but that's not what I'm talking about. To think rightly most simply means that you can correctly assess and assign value. What that means, if you're thinking rightly, you have the ability to know what matters and what doesn't. Let me give you an example. To care for animals, the life of an animal, is good and right and godly. To care for the life of an animal over the life of an unborn baby means that you are not thinking rightly. To work hard at your job honors the Lord. To work hard at your job at the expense or at the neglect of your family means that you are not thinking rightly. You have not placed correct value on those two things. This is what it means to think rightly. And in relation to our text, what it means to think rightly is that when you think about the Lord, you know that he is far more valuable than anything else this world has to offer you. That's what it means to think rightly. And here here is a very important piece of this. Thinking rightly does not and will not come through reason or logic uh, or white-knuckled willpower. You're not going to think yourself into thinking rightly, as silly as that sounds. Thinking rightly comes through a greater love, a greater affection. Right, for those of you who have kids, you're not going to pull that toy away from your kid just by telling them, give it to you. You're going to pull it away by showing them a better one, right? Thinking rightly, choosing rightly comes through a greater affection, a greater love, a greater love. Some of the common language uh, are the repeated phrases that we used at the church that I served at in Texas. Uh, One of them was, we simply said this, we want to be about telling the more beautiful story. We want to tell the more beautiful 
story. And what that simply means is this, that in all the preaching, the teaching, the evangelism, the Bible studies, the small groups, uh, the educational spaces, whatever it may be, the staff meetings, whatever it may be, we want to tell the more beautiful story because shame is a terrible motivator. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Those things will not bring transformation. We can stand on this stage and guilt you into sharing the gospel and you'll be motivated to your car. But we can show you the glory of Christ. Right? We can show you his beauty and his bigness and his weight and say, how could you not follow this God? And you'll go tell the people the same thing because you've seen his beauty. You can't help but to tell people about who you love and the things you love. Guilt and shame are terrible motivators. We want to tell the more beautiful story. What this means is you don't win people to Christ by discrediting the things that they believe in. You win people to Christ by showing them that Jesus is far better than the things that they believe in. You ravish them with the beauty of the kingdom. Right? You let the weight of his glory settle in their hearts and displace all the lesser things, all the temporal things. You tell the more beautiful story. God gives us the power to be conformed into the image of his son. And that power comes through us doing just that, telling ourselves the more beautiful story, telling the next generation the more beautiful story. It comes through knowledge of his own, as Peter would say, his own glory and excellence. I think we see that clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, listen to this line, beholding. That's good stuff. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. We're being renewed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're being shaped, formed into the image of Jesus by beholding, by beholding his bigness, his godness. But this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right, this is discipleship. Being shaped into his image by beholding his glory. Church family, what the next generation needs most is not a new method or a new way to do church uh, or some new fancy whatever. What we need is a vision of God's glory. We need discipleship. We need formation. And that starts with Christ being formed in you with Christ being formed in you. And then you come alongside the next generation and you show them the way. Me, I'm the next generation. I need you to come alongside me and say, Luke, I've followed Jesus longer than you've been alive. Let me show you the way. Let me show you the way of faithfulness. Like King David says, I have been young and I have been old and I have yet to see the righteous forsaken. I don't trust him that much. I haven't seen his faithfulness enough to say that the righteousness have never been forsaken. You have. Show us the way. Show us his faithfulness. What the next generation needs first is for Christ to be formed in you. And then you to form him in us. Teach us. Show us. We need you. There's no twelfth man in the kingdom of God. Right? We need you in the game. Show us the way. The next generation is being discipled 
They are being formed by someone. Church family, it has to be us. It has to be us. Right? Like Bonhoeffer said, this has to be stronger than that. It has to be stronger than that. Earlier I said that the first step of discipleship is salvation. It's not the finish line, but it is the first step. It's the first step of the journey. So if you need to take that first step today, as our instrumentalist plays, we're going to have pastors up front. Church family, we would love nothing more than to show you what it looks like to follow Jesus. If you have not taken that first step, do it this morning. Let today be the day of salvation for you. Let Zach get up here next week and tell the story of your salvation. We want to see that. The next generation needs deep discipleship, deep formation. And that starts with our faithfulness to follow Jesus today. So as you stand, let me pray for us and we'll worship. And you do whatever work you need to do. God, I love you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I have been young and I've been slightly less young. And I've yet to see the righteous forsaken. God, I pray that you would give us an energy. Give the the current generation an energy to see the next generation drawn and wooed by your glory. God, even in this moment right here and right now, show us your face. Show us your glory. Show us how worthy you are to be followed. God, help us to see you rightly. Oh, God, how our lives would change if we could just see you rightly. Help us to see you rightly and love you rightly. Lord, be with us. It's in your beautiful son's name I pray. Amen.